Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, state lawmakers blocked Governor Charlie Baker's attempt to dole out billions in stimulus funds immediately, insisting the spending priorities should be determined jointly with legislative and community input. Sixteen candidates are eyeing one of the four at-large seats for the Boston City Council. That's quadruple the number of candidates for each one seat. And state legislators are lobbying for a specific addition to the president's infrastructure bill, a high-speed bullet train from Boston to New York. We're spending the full hour with the mass politics profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Aaron. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Gerald Duquette, associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. Hello, Gerald. Hi there. Also very happy to be here. (laughs) And Luis Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Luis. Thank you so much. Always happy to be here. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. Well, let's start right off with uh, Governor. It seems that the minute we got past uh, reopening, the governor has just been busy, busy, busy with plans for what should be happening, especially with this stimulus funding. I want to talk about his first proposal to spend billions in the federal stimulus money. And it very much differs from the state legislators' plan. So let's take a listen to Governor Baker. We respect the legislature's interest in having these funds go through an appropriation process. But Our view is that there are significant things that need to happen now. The faster you put that money to work, the faster it creates economic opportunity for people here in Massachusetts and helps jumpstart this economy out of the uh, doldrums that it's been in ever since the pandemic began. So, you know, one part of his plan, he said, was to distribute these funds in communities that had been uh, greatly impacted in a bad way. Uh, just give them an extra boost. You know, there was some caca mix up with the formula for how part of the American Rescue Plan's money should go to those particularly stressed communities. So that makes sense. And he had some other things he wanted to do with regard to housing and other things. Uh, but the legislature is like, no, we get to decide. And oh, by the way, we're going to bring in the communities and do sort of a joint thing. So first, what is your response to uh, what he was planning From the outside, it seems reasonable and perhaps even perfect for this moment, given that these were stressed communities where he was trying to funnel this money. I'll start with you, Erin. You know, I, I think when you look at where they're sitting, it's not particularly surprising. Of course, the governor wants to act as a bit of a czar 
yeah, got a ton of pot of money and he wants to distribute it in particular, like you said, in communities hard hit. He comes out of the business world as your quote included, you know, let's get that money in. Let's get that infusion in quickly. Let's act quickly. And governors, every executive wants more power. What's more surprising in this is the look at the legislature being a legislature. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they want their hands in this, too. Um, they're, they've got policy priorities in their individual districts. And to be able to disperse this money and do credit claiming in their district saying, we got you this, or I should say, I got you this. So I really think this comes down to they have different institutional roles. But uh, as Gerald has talked about, that the divergence here is the legislature actually acting like a legislature and checking Charlie Baker as opposed to acquiescing to him. So, Gerald, you were surprised or not surprised that the legislature said, no, this is what we're going to do? Well, I, because we are now in the context of the 2022 elections, like it or not, uh, I wasn't terribly surprised. It is, a, it is a posture that the legislature has adopted over the past year. The COVID pandemic really did scramble a lot about how the statehouse works. And it actually forced, in a way, it forced the, the uh, usually very much behind the scenes relationship between the state legislative leaders and, and the governor in a little bit more out into the public, right? And we have seen over the last year uh, an unusual amount of um, tension between the governor and the legislature. Whereas for the previous, uh, you know, six years or so, uh, they have really been quite, uh, they've worked well together and they've really had each other's back. And when I'm talking now about the leadership the Senate president and the speaker and the governor. So uh, the context of whether he will make an unprecedented run for a third consecutive term, I think is sort of the, the sword of Damocles over this, uh, the politics and his decision to try to use that money to you know do affirmative things for the state without having to get the okay of the Senate president and the House speaker, that's not surprising, nor is it surprising that they wanted to uh, remind him who's really running the show. So, Louise, you know, the governor was criticized heavily for not sort of getting it at the beginning about where those communities in most distress were and the fact that a lot of the assets and resources were not going to them commensurate with the level of stress they were experiencing. So couldn't this just be his, you know, trying to clean that up and doing the right thing? Yeah, I mean, I think from what you said at the beginning, especially, it does sound very reasonable. Uh, at first glance that, you know, what he said, if we're going to do it faster, we need to do this fast and to the particular people that are suffering. But the problem is when you have a single person deciding, it might not necessarily be the right decision. So from a, the perspective of a citizen, right, without like the politics are not surprising at all, but just from a perspective of a, a person that doesn't care about the politics, but wants the right outcome, I think it's probably better that you have more than one person, or at least, you know, maybe not one branch looking at this. And especially if you can get a little bit of community input. Now that can also go wrong, of course, as these things go, because the more people you have, the more I can delay and so on. And so you want to balance between those two. But I think that just as a matter of getting the right things, even though we do need, we do want this to go as fast as possible, um, getting the right balance, I think, is better to have the legislature involved and the community. All right. Well, Gerald, here's the other thing the governor just announced last week. He wants to extend the sales tax holiday right now. It's August 14th and 15th, two days 
as I said, in August, as it has been over many years. So that's a big deal. So you, you know, get to not have to pay sales tax on large items, everything under $2,500. But now he's saying two months. Let's do it August and September. And his point is, again, back to COVID-related stress on com- on the community in writ large. But in this case, his focus are those businesses that suffered a lot, lost untold number of customers, as we know, some of them closed. But he's saying this is an opportunity to get people back in those stores. And yes, it costs $900 million, But, you know, we're providing something for our community that we, we couldn't do. And it makes a lot of sense because the state has collected more revenue than it expected. So, Gerald, is that pure politics or is this, you know? Well, I don't think there's any reason to assume that the politics is pure, which is to say, uh, there's no reason to believe that's not consistent with his view of how to deal with this sort of thing. In other words, he is a Republican. He certainly uh, believes that putting money into the pockets of businesses and and citizens, he doesn't want the state to make those decisions. He would prefer that market choices, obviously, were made. But it is obviously also a very political statement. Two months, obviously, you know, he's not going to get a two-month holiday. But it's a, it, what you're seeing is some the kind of bargaining between him and the other two members of the big three, the president and the speaker. What you're seeing now is a lot of what used to be bargained behind closed doors is happening in public by press statement. And that's very, very different than we've seen from this governor. Louise, what do you think about that? I think that's good. I think that that kind of bargaining being done in public is a good thing. Now, let me just say that I have always been skeptical. Uh, I, I had not lived in a state before where they had the sales tax as a regular thing. And so I was always very skeptical that that really created any economic anything. But a two month, an opening bid of two months, I think is is the right one because it, you could get, I mean, with something that was maybe a month or something, that actually could have some impact. But I did wonder when Gerald was ta- what Gerald was talking about, uh, because I, am, I don't know about the history of the state, whether this bargaining that happens between the legislature and the governor that is becoming more common, whether that's the norm coming up to the new election for the governor. Right. And, and the answer is no, it is not. It is not the norm in the last three decades, uh, Republican governors and Democratic state, uh, state legislative leaders did the real bargaining behind closed doors. There was posturing, uh, but not not real bargaining. And what I'm po- and my point is that we are looking at, I think, actual bargaining because of the fact that the legislature is concerned, the leaders are concerned about whether how a third run by Baker will impact their, you know, their power on Beacon Hill, their control of the policy agenda. Um, So, Aaron, would you think that given all of that, that we would end up anywhere close to two months of sales tax holiday? No, it's like when you're a kid, you ask for your curfew to be 2 a.m. so that it becomes (laughs) 1 (laughs) a.m. So I think two months is the opening salvo, which is smart. I have two thoughts on this. One, uh, as was said, Baker is a Republican. And starting with the Reagan administration, there was this idea to, air quote, starve the beast, um, to, to write tax codes so that even when you leave office, there's less revenue so Democrats can't do big things. Do I think that's the exact same thing that's going on here? No. But um, uh, less money, and, uh, state revenue isn't necessarily a huge problem for Charlie Baker because he doesn't want to continually expand government. Uh, I'll also say at the end of last week, I heard him interviewed actually on GBH and um, 
a question was posed, what, why not make it targeted towards local businesses? Yeah. Which I found really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. That maybe maybe the, uh, the time frame isn't what gets negotiated, but rather that the two-month holiday is for local businesses, not chains. And of course, you know, that's a hard implement, but it struck me that um, those that have suffered the most in the pandemic are those smaller businesses and that's um, Massachusetts has the most incentive to make improvements there. So if we're bargaining in public, I thought that question might influence the bargaining because Baker Mm -hmm. seemed quite intrigued by that possibility. The other thing we have to mention here, of course, is that the governor's, you know, look, if he is looking towards re-election, he's got this sort of sore uh, toe issue with regard to the mass GOP. This is the kind of thing that the governor can say to really soften opposition from his right, right? He's obviously very anti-Trump, but, you know, these same folks are obviously going to be on his side when it comes to lowering taxes. So that helps him to dilute his difficulties from the right as well. Um, I'm going to quote you, Gerald, at the end of your piece on the blog. It says the ability of legislative leaders to maintain their control of the policy agenda and to protect the political prospects of their members are not seriously threatened by Baker's popularity, but might be if progressive pressures forces Beacon Hill Democratic leaders off the sidelines into the 2020 gubernatorial election. And that's I, a money quote. I, I okay, okay, that's good. <laughs> and I read it because um, Charlie Baker now has some competition from the the progressive side. And I guess they came off the sideline. There are three candidates now at play who have announced that they're going up against him. Here it's Harvard professor Daniel Allen, former state senator Ben Downing, and state senator Sonia Chang Diaz announcing their runs for governor. Imagine one Commonwealth where those who are in power recognize their responsibility to the greater good and where those who fear, feel powerless are reconnected to their own agency through communal action. That's what democracy is about. We have a chance to make Massachusetts work for everyone, everywhere. To clearly and loudly proclaim that we value people over special interests and that we will emerge from this crisis more resilient. The trouble is, that kind of urgency in our state government is still the exception rather than the rule. Too many leaders are more interested in keeping power than in doing something with it. I'm running for governor to change that. Okay, so I guess they got forced off the sidelines, Gerald. Well, actually, I I hate to quibble, but the the folks who uh, the quote refers to are legislative leaders, and none of these people are legislative leaders. Well, former state senator Ben Downing was, and Chang Diaz. Absolutely. And they're 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 literally not leadership because they're progressives. They're more in the insurgent mold than the DeLeo, you know, speaker. They're not actually who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the 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 leadership teams in both houses of the legislature. And the thing is that the interesting thing about that, of course, is that they are interested in maintaining a working relationship with the governor that is to their advantage. When so when when uh, Professor Allen uh, uh, comes into a race and all three of these people are coming at this nomination from the left, they're not coming at this from a mainstream sort of politician perspective. Right. Uh, Professor Allen basically is running against incrementalism. Right. And I and while that makes me smile and lots of academics smile and she's saying very important and things that we may or may not agree with. But that is just she that is not at all what uh, legislative leaders want to hear. 
Uh, and obviously, when they take away the, the uh, governor's ability to spend money and say we're going to go through a process, they're basically waving the incrementalism flag. So all three of these candidates are essentially coming to the nomination fight from the left. And frankly, none of them have the kind of profile that would make them competitive in the general election. Aaron? I disagree with the former point. Um, uh, I mean, Baker is formidable. Um, but I think there are differences amongst these candidates. Sonia Chang Diaz, by entering in last week, she becomes the front runner right now. And she's really speaking directly to progressives. She said, I'm unlike Beacon Hill. I, I actually get done. I do big things. Status quo in Massachusetts is not enough. So she's speaking to those energies. Ben's doing the same thing from Western Mass. They're basically saying, don't settle. Don't settle for Charlie Baker. Just because he's better than Trump doesn't mean he's best for Massachusetts. Uh, I think that message could resonate, though it is definitely an uphill battle. And I think Danielle Allen, listen, I'm a political scientist, so of course I love it when a political scientist runs. But I, I think it's interesting. She's running more as, a, 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 in my mind, a Charlie Baker technocrat, but a technocrat on the left. Uh, I don't know if that will have the same resonance. But I think all of these candidates are, or especially Chang Diaz, I think she, it's hers to lose right now. I don't think Charlie Baker is, you know, quaking in his boots at any of these candidates. But, you know, look, look back. I know it's a within party race, um, but on Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy, once those progressives and those activists get involved, they can throw off today's calculus. So I wouldn't count any of them out, though I do think um, Chang Diaz has the best articulated vision of why she's better than Charlie Baker and why status quo politics in Massachusetts isn't enough. Hmm. I want to make one qualification. I'm I'm basically arguing that the leaders on Beacon Hill would ultimately, if they could get away with it, prefer another Baker term to a progressive. They don't want pressure from the left. Hmm. But I think the point I'm making is from the perspective of mass publics. You're making the perspective from leadership. I'm making the perspective from progressives and mass publics. Louise, where are you standing, leadership or, or mass public? Well, I think, I mean, they're both right, of course. The, the, the points are good ones. Uh, the legislature leaders probably would prefer, like uh, Gerald says, a uh, third term for Baker. But, you know, the reason why Baker can win is because he can maintain sort of a almost apolitical stance. That is, I am not a Republican. People don't think of him as a, uh, or at least not a conservative Republican. So the more people in terms of the mass publics, the more that a progressive is able to Put him in that place. Uh, and you can do that by, you know, depending on where we are in a year, mm. uh, what kinds of topics we're talking about, what kinds of themes. So that that's really what what depends on. But right now, I think he's formidable because he has been able to maintain this position that is, you know, people don't see him as a conservative Republican, right? He's a techno a technopole. And I, just to add on to that very good point, I think Che Diaz is trying to uh, redefine him. You know, she's been so consistent in her critique of Charlie Baker, uh, COVID response as the ways in which it um, doubled down and made inequality worse with the absolute worst outcomes. So I think Louise is 100% correct that that's the way mass publics largely understand Charlie Baker. And it's her task and one she's been doing thus far to redefine him. Mm. 
I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Joining me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories you need to know. All right, let's uh, quickly about this lieutenant governor race. There's a few names out there. There's this Brett Barrow, who is a Democrat and a Babson College lecturer. Then there is this Adam Hines, who says he's seriously thinking about it. The other person who's really talking about it is Representative Tammy Guvea from Acton. And then other people who are thinking about it is State Senator Adam Hines, a Democrat from Pittsville. And it now the rumors are that Jeff Deal, who's Republican and everybody thought which is going to run against Baker or whomever for governor, might be considering a run for the lieutenant governorship instead. That's the word. Governor Baker has said that he and Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito have yet to get together to have a conversation about what they might be doing uh, with regard to re-election. But anyway, let's just get your response to all of that. Aaron, I'll let you start. I, I know Jeff Deal. And uh, for listeners, you know, Jeff Deal has uh, been one of those thorns in the side uh, of Charlie Baker, very much of the Trump mold. He ran against Elizabeth Warren. He's fundraised off what he perceives as problems of Charlie Baker. So it just makes me think of like, because uh, I'm a nerd, makes me think of the founding when the president and the vice president could be of different parties. This would essentially be, if, if it were ever the case that, and this is a, a, unlikely, but if it was Charlie Baker as governor and Jeff Deal as lieutenant governor, um, those two offices would be very opposed. So as a political spectator, it would be wild and a lot of fun to talk about. As a citizen of the Commonwealth, I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, You're chuckling, Gerald. I guess you agree. Well, I certainly do agree. I always agree with Professor O'Brien, first of all. (laughs) In terms of uh, uh, Jeff Deal uh, maybe sending out trial balloons that he might run for lieutenant governor, you got to admit, sort of an interesting tactical move, right? I mean, he knows he's going to he's not going to be able to beat the governor in a head to head primary. But, you know, this the lieutenant governor, that's maybe a a different uh, kettle of fish. Now, uh, interestingly enough, Karen Polito is actually a real conservative. Uh, You know, she really uh, actually could be much more attractive to what is now the Trump wing of the party. So I, I find it hard to believe that he's actually going to end up running against Karen Polito. But, but again, it's one of these things that it's sort of a, a trial balloon, very literally. He's, he's putting it out there to, to see what happens. Hmm. Well, let's turn even more local, and that's to the Boston mayoral contest, which is wild. We have six very, very talented and impressive candidates. So, you know, a lot of cities would would, uh, kill to have that. And so much stuff is going on uh, because as if people haven't paid attention, acting mayor Kim Janey came, well, to some extent, she's still really part of the ranks of the city council. So there is some tension there. She has a foot in each world as she is running to be not the acting, but the mayor in the November election. So first of all, I want to talk to you all about this, the piece that our Soraya Wintersmith did about the out-of-town cash into the Boston mayoral race and just get your thoughts about why you think that's happening to the extent that it is and if you think it's going to probably even be more. I'll start with you, Louise. Uh, well, when I read that piece, I, I did not find it surprising because, of course, Boston is a very important or people have connections to, to Boston and that they might want to shape that race. But some people might find that very troubling just because it's out of town and, and they did make several 
people in the piece made the point that, of course, having money from outside the city means that the mayors might not necessarily uh, represent their constituents. I think it's, a, it's I see it as more benign than that uh, because it's, you know, places like Newton. So it's just it's wealthier people um, that I think naturally are, are donating. Uh, so I don't think I don't find it as necessarily troubling. Uh, I would find it far more so if it was mostly from out of state. Um, and the bottom line is, I don't think you can really limit that. I mean, I, there's just no way to prevent it. Hmm. I will note that Louise raised an important point that when we're saying out of town in this piece, a lot of it were suburbs of Boston. But I am keenly aware, because I'm usually on Martha's Vineyard every summer, that there's a lot of fundraising that goes on and has gone on in the past for many, many Boston, Massachusetts candidates. And it's just kind of interesting as a concept. Listen, Boston is the hub of New England. And so it makes complete sense that individuals who don't live in Boston want to have influence in Boston. Only 13% of the money was from out of state. And I also thought it was telling in that piece she uncovers that, uh, you know, a lot of these individuals, these affluent people from Newton, they gave to like four candidates. And mm-hmm. so th- this is uh, this is what corporations do. They want to maintain a good relationship with whoever wins. And if it looks tight, s- literally spread the wealth. Give everybody something so they're all beholden to you. So I think that's part of what's going on. But I think this just speaks more to Boston is the hub. A lot mm-hmm. of people work in Boston who don't live here. Um, and, and, and so I don't think uh, this seems all really above board, but nonetheless interesting. I think that the real issue is the class problem, not necessarily the geographic problem. Yep. Meaning that the wealth, like that is, is rich people giving money to Boston. So it's not so much that they live in Newton or wherever they live outside of the city, but that they have connections and they can shape whatever policies in a way related to their wealth, not necessarily that they live outside of the city of Boston. So just to be clear about this, if you're rich people giving inside the city of Boston, is it different? You're saying no. Right. It can have more negative influences that rich people outside of the city, because then they would have more influence in the city because they don't live there. They don't live there. Right, uh, right. But it's not the geographical problem as much as the, the class problem. Got it. And I think the class problem is the substance of it. I don't think the class problem is the sort of point of raising it. It's a rhetorical issue. And it's, a, it's, it's sort of a standard rhetorical issue at this point. Outside money is somehow bad. Um, but, you know, so if we're talking about this with our students, we're talking about class. We're talking about the implications for governing. We're, but in terms of a campaign issue, uh, it's, it's not much of an issue unless one of these people happens to do something crazy. You know, in other words, donors uh, are unattractive somehow to the voters. So at this point, I look at uh, this kind of issue as number one, there's six candidates. So, you know, and this is a very high profile race. They got to get money somewhere. It's an expensive race. On the other hand, obviously, it's uh, the issue of outside money is purely rhetorical for the folks who are in it, who are talking about it, because they want their candidate to win. Okay. Aaron, you raised the issue that uh, the uh, Responsible Development Coalition managed to get all of the candidates to sign on and say, yes, we're going to be responsible about development. Exactly why is that important? 
Well, what interested me about it is, you know, I did some digging as to, you know, who's against responsible development? Uh, they're, they're good at politics. They named themselves well. Um, but, you know, these are in part unions and, you know, developers and housing is a major issue in Boston. So then I looked at, you know, what's their pledge that they got everyone to sign? And I won't read all of it, but it's, you know, creates good paying jobs, environmental sustainability, uh, robust community outreach. All those things sound great. But it's largely a coalition of groups that have been at the forefront of um, the housing crisis, of mm -hmm. building more and more unaffordable housing. And so I think this coalition is masterful in putting together, you know, the, this document, this pledge that sounds really good. But when you look at their, you know, their material interest in this campaign, I think their material interest in this campaign is business as usual uh, to continue, you know, the Walsh legacy, which he had many positives, but increases in affordable housing was not one of them. Hmm. So the last thing I want to talk about with regard to the mayoral race is this rule that got put in place to sort of rein in acting mayor Kim Janey. This to me is very interesting, Gerald, because it 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 asserts from the council, don't get too big for your britches, you used to be one of us, <laughs> and we're not kidding around with you. Um, is that how you read it as well? My My question based on how they did it was, isn't that an open meeting law violation? In other words, they did it. They they took this vote when it wasn't on the agenda and they hadn't debated it. So that's a totally separate issue. It just occurred to me uh, when I read an article about it that that looks very much like an open meeting law violation. But but the uh, but otherwise, it looks like they are getting you know various members are getting pressure. And really, it's not it's not necessarily a harmful thing. My One of my first impressions was that this was done with Mayor Janey's knowledge and okay, but that's clearly not the case. The only person who voted against it was her ally and supporter. And his argument, of course, was a good one. And it was basically that, hey, we have a, we have a rules committee. We have a process. We, you know, we don't just bring something up this, this big and, and vote on it without the process. So, you know, it's, it's, I think there's something about it. We don't know is what I think, because mm -hmm. it, there's, there doesn't appear to be any present particular need. Certainly, uh, the acting mayor has made some moves and done some things. She may have pushed the envelope a little farther than her former colleagues would have liked on some issues. She may have had some bad PR on other issues. And this could be sort of a self-defensive move on the part of the council as well. Hmm. Um, Louise, you want to add? Well, that's certainly how I read it, too, that uh, there was something that we didn't know about that she was pushing or trying to do or something. And so this was a a way to limit that. But I also don't see that as necessarily a malign thing, as a bad thing that to, to limit acting mayors. Um, th there could be some benefits to that. So, All right. You want to put a button on it, Erin? I saw it different. So that okay. makes it fun for us. I, I thought of that um, Whoopi Goldberg meme from Ghost, you know, girl, you're in danger. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I, I saw it as... Um, Listen, Kim Janey, uh, uh, you know, Michelle Wu, Andrew Campbell, Anissa, uh, but especially uh, Michelle Wu and Andrea were sort of the heir apparents, um, willing to, to say they're going to run and run against Mayor Walsh, have been lining this up for a very long time, especially Michelle Wu. And then um, uh, this is me projecting onto them, but Kim Janey jumped the line, right, through no fault of her own. 
Um, but I perceive this as, you know, just the insistence that she still use acting and some of the language in there, you know, like she, she's not meeting with us enough, that kind of stuff. She's the mayor. She doesn't have to meet with you all the time. It's a strong mayor system. So I really viewed this as um, their attempt to send a message to Kim Janey that um, don't step out of line. And I think it's an interesting reversal that so many of those counselors I mentioned ran as insurgents on, you know, a, a council that looked the same for years and years and years. But now they're insiders. And so I really I think a lot that those are the dynamics I see at play. I don't think it was politically smart because most voters don't care. And uh, I think it looks kind of petty to be trying to cut Janie off at, at the legs with this, you know, threat of being removed for any reason, as long as there's a two thirds vote. I don't think it'll have any electoral impact. I'm sure she expected pushback from entrenched interest. I don't think she expected this kind of pushback so quickly from the council. Okay. Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs blog Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston. Let's pick up where we left off, and I want to go back to the council. There are 16 who are running for the at large seats. And if any combination of all of them happens, including the two current at-large people who are continuing to are still in the race, this is just going to be a whole, whole, whole different looking council. You had just mentioned, Aaron, that the insurgents now or the or the insiders are pushing back against acting Mayor Kim Janey, but they were the insurgents. And this looks like a whole lot of insurgents. So what's your take on how different it will be if pretty much any combination, even keeping the two who are current council members, it'll still be given um, who's in the race, there's so many different kinds of people in a race, be a big change. I mean, I think the progressives have the day either way. The progressive voice has taken over the council. You know, yes, there's still a Frank Banker. So to me, it's just a matter of how dominant that coalition is. You know, I moved here in 2007 and I think of the council, like I really, I, I remember looking at the council and I think this looks nothing like Boston. And regardless of what happens in all those open seats, the council has gone from conservative Democrats to largely progressive Democrats. And I foresee that whoever wins will just further punctuate this point and further um, diversify the face of the council. Hmm. Louise? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I would expect it's not, it's not just necessarily progressive things that you know we would expect from progressives to bring up. But also, depending on who gets elected in the particular individuals, I would expect that the council would take up on issues uh, that they haven't been discussed or, or very much discussed. Uh, so that's exciting. I, I think this is a perfect opportunity uh, for people that 
um, maybe have not he- have not had their issues heard before or have not had much of a priority to make sure they vote and, and get the person they want in there. All right. So let's move to some national politics and also some local but national connected politics. First, let's start with uh, the vote on the voting bill, which went down in flames, as everybody expected it to, in the Senate, because the Senate refused even to vote to have a discussion about whether or not to vote on it. So here's Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer speaking about the GOP Senate's move to block the voting rights bill last week. Madam President, I want to be clear about what just happened on the Senate floor. Every single Senate Republican just voted against starting debate, starting debate on legislation to protect Americans' voting rights. Once again, the Senate Republican minority has launched a partisan blockade of a pressing issue here in the United States Senate, an issue no less fundamental than the right to vote. Now, there's a lot to say about all of this, including Manchin, the uh, part in it, the Democrat in uh, West Virginia, all of that stirring up. Um, Stacey Abrams coming out before this vote was taken, saying she would support some of the compromises that uh, Joe Manchin wanted to put forth because he was not in favor of the bill as it, uh, the entire bill thought was too broad. But the central issue is really, as um, Chuck Schumer has said, you're going to vote down to even talk about it or think about it? This is fundamental. How do you see it from a political standpoint and from the political history standpoint of what this is all about? I'll start with you, Erin. I mean, it's it's deeply problematic. There's a long line of restrictive voter access legislation in the states and where the feds would step in. That, that's been this ebb and flow. The Voting Rights Act was undermined fairly recently by the court getting rid of preclearance. But um, I, I was one, I suspect some of my colleagues may have been, of well over a thousand political scientists who urged the Senate to pass this legislation because it, it's fundamental to democracy. It is not partisan. I know people hear it in partisan lens, but quite frankly, they're wrong. This is about securing access to the vote, equity and access to the vote. If you're against that, you're against democracy. And I know that sounds a little like Pollyanna, but it's not. Um, All these states after the most recent election or many states have moved to get tougher. And that that's going to stand. And yes, maybe Democrats maybe shouldn't have written as sweeping uh, of a bill. And sure, we can blame cinema and mansion. Those are all fair points. But the biggest takeaway is that Republicans have blocked access to the ballot yet again, ironically, this time using the feds <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to do it in some ways. But um, this is a bad day for democracy when that bill went down. And I, I, I stand by that. And I believe in it very strongly from an institutional perspective, not a partisan one. Um, there is a John Lewis bill, Gerald Duquette, that does not offer as much as that federal bill would have. Is there any hope that that can pass? You know, it's it's almost inconceivable that nothing would pass, because I think at the end of the day, it's not really in the Republicans' interest to, to take this all the way to the midterm election. So, so I would say maybe not that particular thing, but it, it is almost inconceivable to me that, that the two Democrats who are uh, protecting the filibuster would be able to survive, you know, uh, would be able to continue that argument 
uh, if it continues to prevent any kind of reform, uh, making it easier to vote or, or counteracting the what is obvious to all. And I'm one of the 1,400 political scientists who recently signed the the uh, the letter that's on uh, on on social media. It seems impossible to me that they would be able to sort of sustain that position. There by blocking this just to debate, they you know they actually preserved the opportunity of saying I didn't vote against the bill. You know, so I, there's still this sense in my mind that there does have to be a deal somewhere. Hmm. Louise, your thoughts? Okay, so two things. One, I think because voting has be, voting itself has become a partisan issue. Uh, that's a significant problem. That's a problem that should worry all of us. Uh, I'm very worried about it. Uh, so I, unlike uh, Gerald, I don't think that the Republicans will change their mind about that at all. What could happen is that uh, Manton or Cinema might change their mind and there might be some kind of deal. And then at that point, maybe. But I think that as long as Manton and, and Cinema maintain their position, nothing will happen. And who knows? And actually, I think that the midterms um, getting closer, it's just, it's actually better for the Republicans because then they can just run out of the clock. But let me just say for your listeners, um, uh, about the filibuster, I could, I could talk about the filibuster for days at a time. I think it's a <laughs> horrible thing. And let me just mention real quick, nobody created the filibuster. The filibuster was created entirely by accident. Nobody designed this thing. There's nowhere in the world that works like this for good reason. Uh, and the only reason that it still exists is because, uh, originally was basically 100 senators. They have uh, brought it down more and more over time because people abuse it. Um, but it's very, very hard once you create an institution to change that institution if people there are people that benefit from that institution. And so this opportunity, they, they had the Democrats had this opportunity, but they're deluding themselves, Manchin in particular, into thinking that you know it preserves democracy and all of these things. In fact, it does the exact opposite. I would just add one thing, and you all are the experts, so you may disagree with me. And my thought was uh, the reason that you got overwhelming support for the Juneteenth holiday vote is for the precise reason that people who are moving against issues like voting can say, but we voted for Juneteenth. It's really not a race thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it allowed, it's symbolic. It's entirely symbolic. Uh, peop, you know, there's not there's nothing done other than we can say, you know, Juneteenth, happy Juneteenth. Uh, but even then, you still had, you know, 14 people, 14 Republicans that voted against it. Exactly. So. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on. Um, here's our issue, our local issue that's national, and that has to do with our Suffolk County DA, Rachel Rollins. She stepped forward. You know, there's a very messy situation with Dennis White, who was just recently formally fired by acting mayor Kim Janey because uh, the evidence came up that he was involved in a domestic abuse situation when Marty Walsh appointed him as police commissioner on his way out of town. And since then, there's been a lot of back and forth, as we know, about documents, who knew who didn't. Um, Gross, who was the former, recent former uh, police commissioner, said he had turned in documents. And of course, Walsh knew. So, Here's Rachel Rollins. Here is the Suffolk County DA, Rachel Rollins, on whether she believes Marty Walsh, who says he didn't know of any allegations against Dennis White when he appointed him as police commissioner. This is a bad situation overall because either he knew about it and he's lying or he didn't know about it and you're a terrible manager, right? So arguably, what is the 
aside from mayor, is there anything bigger than the commissioner of the Boston Police Department? And there was no vetting process in this. It's just, it, it's sad. All right, so here's why this is bigger than our little city and issues, which is still a big issue around the police commissioner and, and what's going on there. Obviously, Marty Walsh is now uh, labor secretary, so he's in the Biden administration. And Rachel Rollins is one of three candidates up for the top federal prosecutor role here in Massachusetts. So she would need the president's support to eventually get that job. And of course, we know that uh, President Biden handpicked Marty Walsh because he feels very strongly about him. So there's a lot going on here, Aaron. And you were questioning, why would she pick a fight? Uh, just don't say anything, I guess, is, is your point. <laughs> what I love about Rachel Rollins is Rachel Rollins is always Rachel Rollins. And, uh, you know, she she you know, she said the quiet part outside out out loud and she stands by it. And so then I think being herself has, you know, allowed her to ascend politically and, and especially in roles that people didn't think she'd get. So I think I think she bet on herself and let Joe Biden decide. Um, and, and one read is that it makes it harder for Biden not to pick her because, mm-hmm. you know, she's such a strong social justice advocate and she's not um uh, afraid to say something about the air quote hometown guy, if that is what she believes. Um, now, I do think there's one other explanation that she left out that it also reflects quite poorly on Walsh, but not as not as bad. And that is he was looking towards this um, uh, the cabinet role, and he just wasn't paying attention. So it's not it, it's not the terrible manager, and that you looked and didn't ask. It's it, it's a little, you know, that he, he was looking to the next big job and prepping for it doesn't mean you were a terrible manager over the tenure of your um, uh, mayoral ship. Uh, but that's a fine, minute point in the larger thing that Rachel Rollins has demonstrated who she would be if Biden were to pick her, even if it doesn't on paper look politically expedient. So, Louise, she would have to have a Senate hearing and, uh, you know, that's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, I, d- though I don't know that she, I mean, I, I read a lot of right-wing blogs and I follow the right-wing commentary. And usually when somebody that becomes a problem or, or rather has a problem in Senate hearings be- for, with Republicans, usually there has been, uh, you know, people have been talking about them uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and so I, I haven't seen any of that with Rachel Rollins. I don't know that she's prominent enough for people to have picked up on her so that, you know, Republican senators would be even that interested in blocking her position necessarily. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know that 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 would necessarily happen. But regardless, I think I actually agree with Aaron that even if that was the case that, you know, Rachel Rollins read that way and thought, well, you know, the Senate Republic is, is going to be uncomfortable, whatever. Uh, it, it makes her more prominent because if she stands up to the Senate Republicans, even if she gets voted down, that certainly can make her a stronger candidate for something else later on. Hmm. All right, Gerald. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree with both my colleagues. And, and uh, she's obviously very on brand. Uh, she she maybe exaggerated a little bit or, or was not as charitable as she could have been, which is her brand. Uh, and I do. I actually think that when Aaron pointed out that this could be seen as boxing in the president, right, because she is such a strong fighter for social justice. I think that that's a possibility, a real possibility. Hmm. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University, and Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston. We're talking about the latest local and national political news you need to know. There is an effort by state lawmakers to get a piece of the infrastructure bill that is, you know, not yet formulated. It's still in compromise situation. We're down to a trillion from the president's original $2 trillion bill. But apparently there's a lot of movement going on with a little bipartisan group so that it's going to come to pass in some way. That's what folks are saying. But in any case, people here in Boston are really interested in getting a bullet train that would go from Boston to New York. What y'all think? Is this, uh, are you, were you surprised that this is something that lawmakers have on their minds here? Gerald? Well, certainly uh, we spending a lot of time talking about East-West Rail in Massachusetts, so it's not a topic that is far from our consciousness. Uh, you know, making Western Mass particularly more accessible to Boston and now uh, in New York, for that matter. So it's not terribly surprising. Transportation issues are big inside the state of Massachusetts, and it makes perfect sense for for the forces that are uh, eager to see more uh, easily commuted, easier commute from west to east, to also want to see the same thing down to New York. Yeah, remember Springfield. My I grew, grew up in Springfield. We're two hours from Boston, two hours from New York, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not it's not a shock at all. It's it's actually it, it's what you would expect, given that there's already a large political infrastructure for transportation lobbying in the state. Uh, Louise? I think it's long overdue, frankly. I'm shocked it has taken this long, but they're, they're saying this would take 20 years to complete. So it's not, you know, for the folk getting excited right now, uh, it doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean it's going to happen six months from now or whatever, but, we'll get uh, but it is long overdue. Passes. Yeah. <laughs> it, but it, I think it's long overdue and I, I hope it happens, it, you know, the sooner the better. Hmm. Aaron? Yeah, I guess you made your statement. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry I talked over you, Luis, but it was such a good line. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great floating solution to use some of our poli sci talk that, you know, it, 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 environmental constituencies love this. Infrastructure constituencies love this. Um, uh, commerce departments, you know, the, the business folks love this idea. Transportation equity, the, the, the way I understand the plan is they've really taken this into account. So the, the this would be a policy or this would be an improvement that um, a lot of constituencies can really say they like. And to Louise's point about 20 years more seriously, like I, I've just dabbled. I teach urban politics in, um, you know, infrastructure costs and transportation costs. It, it, if this was done in many, though not all European countries, it wouldn't take 20 years. So I also right. think it could be uh, this. It won't be, but it could be a place where the cost for rail in the United States is so much higher. It's done elsewhere, and we need to copy them. Not try to get our own innovations. Just copy them because it doesn't. Ha- the project doesn't have to take twenty years. But that's a little bit of a sidebar. <laughs> yeah, let me just add to that though. The reason why that happens is because of the particular ways, the constituencies and the way that all of this is set up. And I I agree that we need to copy it. But unfortunately, I think that the inertia is very hard to change. Even with a president who is very interested in train travel. No, no, I think I think the money can be can be gained. And I think I, I, I am hopeful that that will pass. But making it faster, the president only has so much power in trying to make that faster. So 
I mean, maybe not 20 years, but I would not be surprised if it took 15. But if this was Europe, it would take five hmm. or 10. Okay. All right. Something else going on. We did, a, you all and I here on this show, did quite a bit of conversation about the shift, the non-shift of Latino voters uh, during the last election, uh, the surprise that some Democrats got by not appealing to different ethnicities and thinking they could lump everybody together and get the same response. Florida standing out particularly, and for that matter, uh, Texas, one area of Texas. So doing a sort of check-in now, it looks like uh, some people are assessing that uh, President Biden is getting a bounce back with Latinos, that he's building back what he was perceived to have lost in the lead up to the election and during the election. So, Luis, this is where you live. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so several things are happening here. So one problem in trying to assess where the Latino electorate is or is going is that in 2020, there were a lot of confounding factors. One of the big one, biggest ones was COVID. So we don't know to what extent all of those things that happened are creating a permanent shift. That is, for instance, the money that came from the Trump administration, also the fact that the Democrats did not um, try to mobilize people on the ground, you know, knocking on doors, that sort of thing. So we don't know to what extent that changed things. That's one problem. The second issue is that which could be a permanent shift, which actually would dramatically change American politics is whether or not Latinos are following in the steps of the white electorate. That is that folks that don't have college, like working class, are moving in the direction of Republicans. If that's the case, if the Latino electorate is following the same footsteps as everyone else, uh, or at least the, the white electorate, then that would really change the coalition, the Democratic coalition. And it would be very, very difficult for them to win in Florida, let alone in Arizona or Nevada. Uh, but we don't know if that's happening yet. Uh, it could be, but we don't know. Now, the third thing uh, that you mentioned about Biden, this is historically has been the case that the incumbent gains with Latinos. Mm -hmm. Now, it's it's unclear. There's, the literature is not completely clear on the reason why incumbents. At, at several points, there have been different theories about this related to familiarity and other things. But th that does seem to be happening. I, I think it's more the issue that they like this, Biden is not you know, constantly talking about immigration or talking about Latinos, this, Latinos, that, as a, as a threatening force, uh, at least with some of them. But again, I'll remind your listeners that when we talk about Latinos, we're talking about a group that is not necessarily coherent sometimes because we have so many subgroups within them. So you can have simultaneously some groups moving way to the right, like Venezuelans, and then other people moving to the left, like Mexicans. And then you have this confounding problem uh, where it's hard to explain. Well, I will, I will say, Gerald, that there is plenty of evidence and a lot of communities who've been quite vocal about the fact that the numbers of rates of COVID infection in predominantly Latino communities was off the charts. So at the highest rates, that would seem to have maybe left people with some amount of disaffection, if they had some, for President Trump, because that didn't happen. And so as you know, what Biden did, as he said he was going to do when he came in, was I'm going to concentrate on this epidemic. That's what I'm going to do first. And in doing that, that may have in, engendered a, a bounce in addition to what may normally happen. 
Yeah, I think that's a very plausible theory. Uh, it's essentially when you're thinking about public opinion, people's real life, everyday life uh, has an impact. And in the case of uh, people in minority communities, they they didn't have the luxury of thinking of the of COVID as a problem other people had, right? They, they, they saw the, the uh, impact of COVID in their communities. And frankly, many communities around the country did not. So uh, th that is, a, in my mind, that's a very plausible theory. Erin? Mm. Final thoughts? <laughs> sure. Uh, mine's uh, uh, much more uh, minute, I would say, because, you know, I always learn from my colleagues, especially Luis, on this particular issue. I do want to point there is a difference between vote share and public opinion, mm. right? Vote share is amongst voters. <laughs> mm. And then public opinion is usually, and as I understand this poll, of uh, residents of the United States. So it could be that some of the those people who are approving of, or some in the Latinx community who are approving of Joe Biden didn't vote at all. Um, but I think that the points both my colleagues made are the more important ones on this particular topic. That's an excellent point to distinguish between the two, Aaron. But just just to clarify, in terms of incumbency, uh, the vote share of Hispanics or Latinos uh, always goes up, right? Has gone up, or, or has gone up too. So not just the not just the approval, but also the the vote share. So what we don't know is whether Biden will also gain that. But uh, Obama, W. Bush, and so on have have done so. Um, I'm doing a fast round robin with all of you on one question, and that is Val Demings, who's a Democrat representative in the House, who was on Joe Biden's shortlist to be his running mate, has announced that she's running against Marco Rubio, senator, running for that seat. I'd love to know just quickly, Louise, does she have a shot? I, I'm impressed with her. I think she has a shot. OK, Gerald. I really hope so. She's going to be a great, great candidate. Aaron. Yes, but Florida always kills you. Though she's, if you're a Democrat, <laughs> though she's uniquely positioned, um, she's on the air quotes right side of law enforcement as well. So she's a really uh, attractive candidate on many um, realms. Well, we'll revisit that, as you know, as time passes, as we will many other issues. So for now, I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Erin O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. And Louise Jimenez is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Some of our mass politics profs who also write a blog are co-editors of an upcoming book, Massachusetts Exceptionalism, Fact or Fiction. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and Angela Yang, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Iptisam El-Maliki. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>